This morning, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. Uh, we call this, we're going to call this message, Groaning to Glory. As a kid growing up, my favorite place in the entire world was Cedar Point, Ohio. This roller coaster park, let's be real, it's, it's still my favorite place in the world. Uh, this has been the number one amusement park for over 30 years running. Eat your heart out, Mickey Mouse, right? Six Flags is nothing on Cedar Point. But as a 10-year-old, as we would prepare to travel from Alaska to Ohio, I had the attention span of, well, a 10-year-old, right? And so we knew all that would be in place between me leaving Alaska and getting to Cedar Point. And so we had to start by flying across country. And remember, this is before we had direct flights to Chicago. And it would take us like 36 hours. You were always going to be overnighting in Seattle, right? You were on those plane flights for five and a half hours, which for a 10-year-old was ADD Hades, right? And this was before DigiPlayers. So your parent would give you a word find and a stuffed bear and be like, here, entertain yourself across three time zones, right? And so now there's just this groaning and this complaining. And then we get to Ohio and there we got we to gotta go through this barrage of relatives who are pinching your cheeks and telling you how they remember you and you were just this big, right? And now we're driving up to Cedar Point, which still takes several hours and you're in the Midwestern heat and you open that door and, and the car hits you like an oven and you're sitting in the car trying to buckle up and that metal is burning your flesh because we're not in Alaska anymore, Dorothy, right? And then we're in the car with our siblings arguing and whining and complaining, are we there yet? Groaning. And then around the corner, we behold the tip of Lake Erie, the glory of Cedar Point. But we're still not on the roller coaster yet. 45 minutes to wait in line just to get your tickets. And now you're in there, but now I've got to wait for several hours to go on one roller coaster. And I can't even get a drink because they charge $5.75 for a 20-ounce Dasani. Like, that's not extortion, these greedy capitalist pigs, right? And finally, finally, I get up onto the roller coaster, seatbelts on, tick, 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 tick. <laughs> the glory. And all the plane flights, all the car rides, all the relatives, all the heat was worth it for the glory And today what we're going to hear from God's truth is that the groaning of our lives must precede the glory to come. We're going to hear from God's word that the cross must come before we receive the crown. And maybe you came in here this morning and you were groaning. Maybe you're, you're feeling the length of this earthly car ride. And maybe for you, there's a, you're suffering in a relationship right now. Maybe for you, there's this temptation, uh, this sin struggle that you're engaged in and feel like you're getting defeated in. Maybe for you, there's a, some kind of physical or mental ailment, or maybe it's all of it. And man, for you, the groaning this morning is very real, and the glory to come is very not. And what we want to read in God's word today that he wants to tell you is the Holy Spirit, there's a promise here, that he will be faithful to remind us that the coming glory will make every second of our present groaning worth it. 
We've been walking through Romans 8, which we say is the, probably the pinnacle of Romans, if not the entire Bible in the Christian life. And the Holy Spirit is, is predominantly featured here. 19 times he's mentioned. And we've been already seeing all the things that God has given us, the good gifts he's given us through the Holy Spirit. He says that he lives in us. The, Holy, the person of the Holy Spirit indwells you today, if, if you're a believer. He gives us life and peace. And that life and peace, it sets us free from sin and death. He's going to lead us. He's going to guide us. He says that, that Romans 8 says he enables us to live rightly. The righteousness of God being fulfilled in us through the power of the Spirit. He empowers us to kill sin, to, to put it to death by His Spirit's power. He confirms our adoption as God's children. He connects us to the Father's love. And last week we saw that He cries from our heart, Abba, Daddy, Father God. He bears witness that we indeed are the children of God. And finally, He bears witness that we are guaranteed our sonship inheritance to receive from God everything He's promised, namely God Himself. This morning what we're going to do is the, see the last thing in Romans 8 that he tells us that the Holy Spirit does for us and in us. He's going to help us in our present groanings and secure for us the future glory. He, he, he helps us in our, our current groanings and secures for us the, the coming, the future glory. So Paul's thesis, if I would sum up what he's going to say in, in these next verses, is that groaning must precede glory. Groaning must precede glory. Now let's go back to the end of last week's uh, verse 17. We finished up here. And if children, Paul says, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now hear what Paul is saying here. He says we have this amazing inheritance coming. We're going to receive eternal life that we will have this relationship with God where we're ruling and reigning with Christ over the known universe. I mean, that's amazing. That's insane. But then he says here, here's this minor key that comes in. And he goes, provided, that's a conditional word, if, this is what, the inheritance is coming, but here's what has to come first. He says, we suffer with him. First, we got to suffer with him. And then, and look at what he says, another connecting word, in order. In order that we may also be glorified with him. There's an inheritance coming, but to receive that glory, we must first follow the path of suffering. And you remember Jesus. I mean, Jesus had to experience the agony of the cross before he was able to experience the glory of the resurrection, before he was reconnected to his Father, sitting next to his throne. And so we, too, are promised here as Jesus' followers that, that we, too, as we walk this earthly pilgrimage, that we're going to experience heartache. We're going to experience loss. We're going to experience separation. We're going to experience limitation. We're going to experience suffering. We're going to experience present groanings before we taste of the glory to come. Listen, suffering is not optional. The cross had to precede the crown for Jesus. The groaning has to precede the glory for us today. But then he says, oh man, you can't even compare the two. Verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. He says here, I mean, you think about it, he says you can't even compare the two. So ima imagine for a second that I took this sheet of paper, which on average weighs about four and a half grams, right? Take a hundred of these bad boys to make one pound. I take this piece of paper that's four and a half gra grams, and I compare it, this word had talked about weight, I compare the weight of this piece of paper with planet Earth. Do you know how much planet Earth weighs? 5.972 times 10 to the 24th kilograms. I have no idea what that even means, right? <laughs> One kilogram per 1,000 grams. I googled, compare the sheet of paper with the planet Earth, and you know what came in the results? Nothing. 
because that's not a thing. You don't compare those two. That's a drop of water to the ocean. It's a pinky finger length to the journey to the sun. He says, man, your present sufferings can't even be compared to the glory that's coming for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the word that he uses here, I mean, you think about if I get interviewed after my roller coaster ride and someone goes, hey, man, was it worth it? Like, was it worth the plane flight? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You can't even compare. I don't care. I would have wrapped around the earth with my brother and sister in that hot, sweaty car four times to get to this little roller coaster. Don't even compare them. And the word Paul uses here, he goes, I consider. I consider these sufferings can't be compared to the glory. Now, that word consider, it's an interesting word he uses there. That word, it means to reckon or to count. And if you've read through Romans, that's a faith word. We've seen that. Back in chapter 4, he said, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Because of Abraham's faith, God counted, considered, reckoned Abraham perfect in his sight because of his faith in the coming Savior. And then we saw in chapter 6 the same word. So you must also consider, reckon, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is a faith issue. And he says the same word here. I consider that you, can't, you cannot compare present sufferings with coming glory. And for Paul, this was choosing to believe God's word when by definition we can't see this. Will you this morning count, reckon, consider this to be true, that your present suffering will one day be far outweighed by the glory to come? And he's going to show us three types of groanings here that help kind of work us through this point that he's making. The first one is creation. Creation groans. This is an illustration that he's going to give for us. And the first point under that is he's going to say groaning is temporary. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, Paul is going to use here a literary tool that we call personification. It's when we give human characteristics to non-human things. Give human characteristics to non-human things. The Bible is full of these. We use these in our language all the time. Uh, Psalm 114.4 says, The mountains skipped like rams. Now, this isn't literal. This is not saying Mount Readout sprouts some horns, has some hooves, and starts prancing around the cook inlet, right? This is a metaphor to talk about the way that we delight in who God is. And this is what he's doing here. He's using this metaphor, uh, this, this personification. He says, The creation waits with eager longing. Now, he's talking about non-human creation, rocks and trees and plants and animals. So he's not literally saying that they're waiting, because this word here, waits with eager longing, it's one Greek word that means, or a compound word, which means watching with outstretched head. What that means is like when you're craning your neck, when you're trying to see something, like we've been in construction out in the Sterling Highway, amen, and we're looking, is it, are we there yet? Can we leave yet? I'm just trying to get home, right? And we're craning our necks, we're waiting eagerly. And what he's saying here is this is not literal, Right? You're not driving down K Beach and all of a sudden a tree whacks you, throws your car across. Oh, sorry, I was just waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, right? This is not trees and rocks literally craning their rockness to see him come. It's, it's a point that he's making. And the point is, there's a day coming when we are going to receive our immortal bodies. When our destiny will become realized, we will be crowned as sons and daughters of God. We're going to be ruling and reigning with Jesus forever. And he says that day is so glorious that all of creation, metaphorically, is waiting with bated breath, craning their necks to see, like, like a lover waiting for their, 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 their lover to come home from an airport. And this reminds us that this current life, man, it's temporary. 
There's something better to become to come that cannot even be compared to the now. And there's a reason that this creation is awaiting this as well, metaphorically. The second thing we want to see here is that groaning is a consequence. Groaning is a, a consequence. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God created, uh, subjected creation to futility. Well, what's that mean? Well, the word futility here means vanity. Or, or temporary, vapor, a meaningless. This is Ecclesiastes language. Remember, meaningless, meaningless, said the teacher. Everything comes today and it leaves tomorrow. It's all temporary. It's all breaking down. And what he's saying here with creation is everything's going to die. So what's the point? Creation has been subjected to this death-like march toward futility. Now, this can be a bit depressing, and it's been a beautiful last couple weeks. Okay, September, thank you, Jesus. But as you've been looking out your window recently, what do you start to see? The leaves are starting to change colors and die, right? And we see that everything in creation is moving that direction. Glaciers are receding, right? We, we see that the bluff, the bluffs are crumbling, right? John and Diana, ugh. <laughs> We know that all of your precious little pets will someday die, right? Sorry, that was, that was mean. That was, that was too far, too far, too far. But I'm just telling you the truth, right? Don't shoot the messenger. The second law of thermodynamics says everything is breaking down. Everything is moving from, from order to disorder, to, to chaos, to death and destruction. And why is this? Why is physical creation all moving this direction? Well, we know Romans, or Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis 3 tells us, right? It's the fall, the fall, it's the sin. Uh, and and, and we, say, we see here in Genesis 3, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, that's not inherently wrong. <laughs> Look at, watch and finish the sentence. And have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered into the world, and all of creation, including physical creation, was cursed. Cursed to this, this process of death and destruction, of futility. But just like for us, there's a hope. The same thing is true for all of physical creation. Look at where he goes in verse 21. In hope. There's futility. God subjected it into futility, but it groans in hope. In hope for what? That the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and death and destruction and obtain the freedom of the glory of, of the children of, of God, what will be ushered in. I love 2 Peter 3, it, it echoes this. It, it says this, looking forward, we're looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. He says there's coming a day when, when all of creation, it's going to be destroyed. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but it's going to be destroyed. But then after that destruction, that ultimate destruction, there will be a renewal, a recreation of heaven and earth. And creation is longing and looking and waiting for that day when it will no longer die, when it will no longer be destroyed. It will not be futile. It will go on and on forever in glory. Creation has a lot to crane its neck out and look forward to. And the last thing we see with creation here is he says groanings, the groaning is universal. It's universal, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. It's not just one part of creation. It's all of creation that's in this, part of the curse. It's been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That groaning is like the pains of childbirth. It's interesting to notice that I saw a lot more women nodding along with that analogy than the men. 
just making an just making an observation. It's interesting. It's a great analogy, though, because what pictures, what pictures in the childbearing process do you see posted on Facebook? You don't see the husband posing next to his wife during the labor process, right? Like the matted hair, the sweat, like blood's flying everywhere, and he's next to him going, like some kind of duck lips, like, you know, this is great. Like, no, that's not the picture that you see on Facebook. What's the picture that's posted on Facebook? It's afterward. It's after the pain. It's the glory, right? It's the mom or the dad that's glowing with this bloody goop of baby getting some skin time, right? And as weird as it might look, that, it's, it's as though your heart has jumped out of its, your chest and is now being held in your arms. And it's that glorious moment that we're spraying on the internet. But without that pain, without the groaning, without the, the, the pains of childbirth, the, the sufferings, the cross, you don't get this picture, right? Your baby came out with a bow too, didn't it? It's amazing. It's so cool. <laughs> There is no glory, there's no joy, there's no crown without the cross, without the suffering. And creation groans, but not in ultimate futility. It, it groans in a hope of the, of the birth joys that are to come. Now we know if, if you go to a hospital, and listen, the cries and screams in the OB looking forward to the joy of childbearing is much different than the noises you hear in the oncology department. But I say that tenderly because we know this verse gives us hope that there is ultimate hope in the groanings in the oncology department as well. That our God is one who has conquered the grave. And no matter what kind of suffering and groaning and crosses that we bear today, we can look forward with craned necks to the revealing of the glory of the sons and daughters of God. So what's the point? What was the point that Paul is making here as he illustrates with creation? Well, creation groans, but so do we. He's going to turn to show how we grow, the implications of what he's saying. We gain three things through this groaning. The first thing we gain is an anticipation of the glory to come. Verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the, of the Spirit, we have him now, today, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of, of our bodies. What he says here is Paul says, like creation, we too groan but with an eager anticipation. Now, for anticipation of what? What are, what are we anticipating? Well, he tells us here, for adoption as sons. Now you say, wait a second, last week we, I thought we'd established we already are sons and daughters of God, that we're crying out today, Abba, Father. So what's he saying that we're waiting for? Well, you look at what, what he says particularly here, yes, positionally, we are sons and daughters of God right now, but we are yet to receive the full inheritance of what that gift means. And, and he says it right here. We, we're waiting for the adoption of sons, comma, the redemption of our bodies. That, that what's coming someday that we are going to receive is these, are these new immortal bodies that will not die, that will not break down, that I will not have hips like these anymore, right? Amen, hallelujah. A couple weeks ago, I flossed for you. And I can't do it again today because we're gearing up for two services next week. I don't have that in me. But we are going to, our bodies will not have limitations. And I don't know if that means we're going to be flying. I don't know what all that implies. But we ask the question, well, what's the difference? Like, what will an immortal body look like compared to our mortal bodies today? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about that. He says, what has been sown, he talks about seed language. He says, what has been sowed perishable will be raised imperishable. 
So think about what, the difference between planting a seed and then what it becomes. You take an acorn. Like, look at that acorn, and you compare it to what it becomes after it's planted in the ground. It becomes an oak tree. You can't even compare the two. The suffering, groaning compared with the glory to come, what we are today. And we have some pretty amazing bodies today. But to think about what life will be like when we are immortal, living face-to-face in the presence of Jesus, he said you can't even compare them. second thing we gain is an attitude of perseverance. An attitude of perseverance. He says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. As part of this, this hope, part of what we gain from this hope that we look forward to is perseverance and patience through this marathon of, of life. Now, it's been said, and, and I, this has been really helpful to me to think about it in this way, hope is faith in the future tense. Hope is faith in the future tense. It's a belief or a confidence in what God has said, has promised to us in the past about what is to come in the future. And by definition, we can't see it. All we can see right now is the suffering, is the groaning. But the question is, do we have hope in what God has said about what is to come? And and Paul's point here is that the suffering, it it gives us a desire for the eventual reality of the much sweeter glory to come. Now, I want you to hear me on this. This is not to minimize your current suffering. He's not saying it's not a big deal, get over it. This is not minimizing our current suffering. He's writing to the church in Rome. Who is the emperor of Rome at that time? It's Nero. Nero is a man who's torturing Christians for their faith, lighting them as human torches and feeding them to lions for sport. He was not minimizing their suffering. You read through Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, these people who are looking forward faithfully to what God is giving them. And Hebrews 11 says none of them received it right here on earth. But they were looking forward. What did they receive here on earth? They received whippings. They got sent to prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in half. Can you imagine what it would be like to be sawed in half? He says they were mistreated. They were abused. They were poor. Many of them did not have homes. But then he says in Hebrews eleven sixteen. So that they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's hope. Hope in what is to come. Hope in what we cannot see today. This passage is not minimizing our suffering. It is magnifying the future glory to come. Because whatever you're going through, the depth of your suffering, it cannot even be compared with Cedar Point, with being in the presence of Jesus one day. And this hope, this faith in the future tense, what he says it develops in us today is this patience and perseverance as we look forward. And, and this is all tied back together. It's, it's worth reviewing back to, to Romans 5. We, we talked about this. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that one day God will reveal his glory full, we'll see Jesus as he is, we'll become like him. We actually get to participate in that glory, laying down our crowns. Not only that, though, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why in the world would we rejoice in the midst of suffering? He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, patience, perseverance. And endurance produces character. We'll see next week, the point of all of this is to become like Jesus in our character. And character produces what? Hope. And he brings it all the way back full circle to the Holy Spirit. Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. The Spirit is there to remind us to come alongside us in our weakness and say, hang on. Hold on. Because maybe right now, today, you're facing a situation 
or maybe you have, and if not, you're a human, so I can guarantee you, you one day will. Go through something where you say, Justin, you're crazy. I see no hope here. I see no ability to trust God here. I see no ability to be patient here. I see no ability to hold on here. And you know what? You're exactly right. You can't. You cannot do it on your own. We do not have the ability to persevere, to be patient in what God called us to endure. That's why the next groaning, the final groaning groaning we'll see in this passage is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a promise to secure us, to keep us from falling when we feel like we can't take another step. The Holy Spirit groans, an intercessor for us. The last thing we gain through the Spirit is an assurance of his support. Verse 26, this is so beautiful. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He says the Spirit prays for us when we're too weak or we don't know what to pray. And you see this with parents with their little kids all the time. Um, My uh, two-year-old niece, June, she'll come running into the, into the, the room. She's got snot coming down her face, peanut butter and jelly just plastered everywhere. And what does mommy do? Mommy talks to daddy as though she's June, Daddy, could you please wipe my face off, right? June has no idea there's a problem, right? I don't, she's just like, what? You know, sl- flinging boogers around. Like, well, I don't even know. What are you talking about? I remember as a kid, I, I came running into the room with these, a pair of scissors, and I was doing like Chucky style. I was just like, ha, 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 ha. And here comes my mom, and she's like, ah, like we need, Daddy, could you take these scissors away from me? And I'm like, what's the problem? I don't see as I head toward a light socket, right? Like, I didn't even realize there was a problem. And here we are, like a bunch of adult two-year-olds, running around going, okay, God, here I am, I'm ready. And he's going, whoa, whoa. And the Holy Spirit steps in, and he goes, you don't even realize, you don't even realize there is a problem, let alone that you need to ask for some help, big help. And the Holy Spirit, he groans for us in our weakness, asking for the Father for things that we don't even realize that we need, things to be taken away, things to be given to us. There's a story about one of our fathers of the faith, uh, St. Augustine. And you, probably, you may have heard of his book, Confessions. And he, uh, the story, it talks about him being a very wicked man in his youth, but it says later he was converted. Uh, Augustine was greatly loved by his mother, Monica, who was a Christian and ha- had a heavy burden on her heart for her son. She learned that he was leaving home and going to Italy. Nothing good comes from there. So she prayed that God would not let him go because she feared he would get into worse sin there. See, there, That was her special request, but God did not answer it. Augustine went to Italy, and he was actually converted there. His mother did not know how to pray as she ought, so God did not answer her special request in order that he might answer her lifelong request. God knows our aspirations, and he answers in his own way. See, it says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. This word intercede, it means to intervene between two parties with a view to reconciling differences. See, we have some differences in our heart and God's heart for us that we don't often see what God's plan is. We don't, we don't know what his will is for our life. And we might will something different than, than he does. It says here, the Holy Spirit reconciles those differences. Verse 27, he, this is talking about God, God searches hearts who knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We don't fully know what God's plan is for our life. We don't see what he's doing. We don't know fully what his heart is for us. But the Spirit does, because he's God. And the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. So listen, when your loved one is suffering, or you're going through suffering yourself, and you ask God to take it away, 
and he doesn't. For a long time, he doesn't. That doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. We, we started this chapter off, no condemnation. The suffering is not wrath. And then we're going to see at the very end, nothing can separate you from his love, from his Abba, Father, love for you. He desires the best for you. He has a plan, a will, a heart for you that's above anything that you could ever ask or imagine. And the Holy Spirit is intervening on our behalf before our God according to God's best for us, his will, not ours, actually aligning our will with his will. Do you trust him? And next week, we'll talk about exactly what God's will is for each of us, or he, how he's using all these things for good, and we can know pretty clearly where all things are, are heading to. But I want to finish this morning with a story of a woman. Her name is Joyce Lanford. And she wrote a, a, a story called Morning Song. And in the context here, she is in the hospital with her, her dying mother. And this is what she has to say. I sat there for another 15 minutes, and the doctor asked me to take uh, the nurse's place and hold my mother's hands. I came around the bed and was met by the plainly visible force of her agony. There well may be a treatment procedure which is more painful, but I sincerely doubt it. She managed a very weak smile and asked, is it almost over? Are they almost through? I looked across the doctors. Together they shook their heads, indicating negative. It'll be just a little bit more. I, I lied. Pretty soon her face lit up, and, and I knew she'd had some kind of inspiration. She said, Joyce, honey, sing for me. Without looking up, I could see the doctors behind her just staring at me. What did you say, mother? I asked. Sing for me right now. It'll, it'll help the time go faster. I was a little surprised and was about to tell her I had practically had no voice at all when her doctor said, oh, Mrs. Miller, honey, Joyce has been here almost seven weeks around the clock. She's so tired. She probably can't sing. Don't ask her to. My mother's old, vivacious personality and vibrant sense of humor just snapped, crackled, and popped through her brown eyes. She turned her head backward just enough to see them and said, listen here, doctor, honey, if you paid for as many voice lessons as I have, when I say sing, she sings. <laughs> the room exploded with laughter. Add a girl, Mrs. Honey, and Mrs. Miller, honey. Add a girl, they said to her in unison. Sing, they said to me. It was during her greatest moments of unbelievable pain that she came through with her giant sense of humor. But as I stood there looking at my mother's face and seeing her bravery and courageous stamina, I thought I'd better find the voice to sing because if she can endure these tubes suctioning out the fluid in her chest with such good humor and love, the least I can do is sing my heart out for her. Besides, there was the matter of all those voice lessons. Before she told me what she wanted me to sing, I would have guaranteed anyone that she would have asked for either the song, His Eye is on the Sparrow, or My Heavenly Father Watches Over Me. She looked up, however, and said, Oh, honey, sing me the sound of music. The song or the whole thing, I asked. <laughs> she answered, the whole thing. I certainly hadn't expected that. But they're in the hospital room with doctors, nurses. Tubes, equipment, and even cleaning women. I sang the whole musical while she held tightly to my hands. The window had been opened and a slight ocean breeze was drifting across the room. When I got to the last song, she lifted her head ever so slightly toward the windows, and the cool air seemed to gently fan her with fresh life. 
She bravely and majestically sang the last four lines of the song with me. I go to the hills when my heart is lonely. I know I will hear what I've heard before. My heart will be blessed with the sound of music. And I'll sing once more. As we sang, the realization swept over my soul that she didn't need the assurance or the comfort of such beautiful gospel songs as his eyes on the sparrow, because she was already assured and comforted by God's love. No wonder she asked for the sound of music. She wanted to hear songs that would be a prologue to her homegoing. She knew she was soon to hear all the magnificent voices, choirs, and instruments of heaven. She wanted me to sing the opening preludes and to start the earthly overture for the great heavenly concert that was about to begin for her. Joyce was living out the reality of her present suffering, not even being able to be compared with the glory to come. And as we finish here, we want to, we want to conclude by reading this, this passage of Paul's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It echoes what we've been reading today in, in Romans 8. Um, it says in verse 7, Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over for, to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. Verse 16, Therefore we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal.